1: Hello, and welcome to another episode in New Books in History. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Alexander Dukalski about his book, Making the World Safer Dictatorship, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. The book looks at the tactics that authoritarian states use for image management and the ways in which these strategies vary from one state to another using promotional tactics of persuasion and obstructive tactics of repression. In this study, he uses a really diverse array of data, which I'm going to be asking him about, including interviews, cross-national data on extraterritorial repression, looking at public relations filings with the U.S. government, analysis of propaganda, and many, many other things. This book analyzes how successfully some authoritarian states succeed in using image management to enhance their image abroad, but also their internal and external security, and how all of these techniques together help enable dictatorship in today's world. He also introduces a data set, which I'm sure we're going to be discussing, um, which can have some great implications for future research as well. So thank you very much for writing this book and coming onto the podcast to talk about it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So first off, can you please introduce us to your research question and explain how you came to write the book?
0: Sure. So there are really three research questions that um, that the book focuses on. One is, what motivates authoritarian states to look good abroad? Uh, it's, for me, has always sort of been a puzzle or something that's bothered me. Um, Authoritarian states don't really need, you know, foreigners don't vote, you know, foreigners don't uh, have a say in the running of their government. And so it was always kind of puzzling why there was so much effort being put on authoritarian states kind of manicuring or crafting their image abroad. So, why do they even care what outsiders think is kind of the first and most basic question. The second is how do they manage their image abroad? What exactly do they do? Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about kind of soft power and associated concepts uh, uh, at, at some point later. But, um, you know, what are the kind of nuts and bolts of what authoritarian states do to manage their image abroad? And what do they think they're doing? Like what in their ideal world, what are they achieving? Uh, that That's kind of the second question. And the third is what are what are. Uh, Sort of the chains linking those activities to outcomes. You know, what do they what, what do they envision unfolding over over a period of time? So those are kind of the research questions um, in terms of kind of how the book came about. Uh, so my first book was about domestic information control in authoritarian states. Uh, how states shape the information environment to basically control their citizens and narrow their horizons of of thought. Um, one method states uh, use to do that is to censor a lot of information, obviously, right? We're familiar with the censorship apparatus of authoritarian states like China or North Korea or, you know, whatever it might be. But authoritarian states abroad can't really censor, right? So they have to adopt different tactics and different approaches. So that's sort of started to, to interest me. Um, the You know, the other sort of, I don't know, origin story of the book, I guess, is I was seeing authoritarian states do these methods all around me, right? So, you know, this the period in which I was preparing and thinking about the book coincided with um Russia today or RT becoming an international news story and it coincided with China investing a lot of money in its foreign propaganda apparatus and launching CGTN China Global Television, for example. So, you started to see more of this um, around in in the years leading up to when I, when I wrote the book Um, on top of all of that, there's um, a very large Confucius Institute on my campus. And so, you know, looking uh, you know, every time I go into my building, I can, I'm sort of confronted with this big authoritarian state that has this building on campus, at least partly designed to uh, change and, manicure its image. So it was sort of in front of me every single day. And so uh, that, that that's kind of how the book, uh, you know, how those questions started to kind of germinate in my mind.
1: That makes a lot of sense, um, and certainly explains the range of ways in which you look at this that we're definitely going to talk about. But first, I wanted to ask about what you've already mentioned, soft power. Um, and obviously, this is part of a number of literatures that you look at, Um, But soft power is probably going to be quite familiar to our international relations listeners, Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how your book relates to these concepts, diverges from, builds on conceptions of soft power.
0: Yeah, so you know, like any good uh, political science or international relations book, you kind of have to discuss what everybody has said about your topic beforehand, and then ideally, kind of coin your own term or uh, or create some kind of synthesis between them. So. Soft power is the most well known kind of concept in this area. Uh, it's basically the power of attraction through ideas and foreign policies and values and that kind of thing. Um, and it kind of has always uh, bothered me a little bit for, for a couple of reasons when, when we apply it to authoritarian states. The first is that when we think about soft power in the US and European contexts, it's often framed or discussed. In terms of societal activities, so the kinds of things that societal actors in the U.S. or the U.K. or France or whatever do. So, you know, Hollywood, for example, has uh, bears on uh, American soft power. Okay, um, you, you know, U.K. Uh, um, you know, arts and um, uh, music bears on on uh, on British soft power. Um, even sports and things like this, right? none of these are, I mean, there's government investment across some of those uh, domains, but they're not directly controlled by the government. Whereas authoritarian states, when they think about soft power, they very much think of it as a state-driven, state-controlled, centralized sort of thing, right? Something you invest in and you expect to kind of see results. And so it always, that disjuncture of how soft power is often talked about and what soft power how authoritarian states think about soft power um, kind of um, you know b- b- bothered me or, or bugged me, and I wanted to think more about it. Um, on top of all that, for me, something like soft power or um, public diplomacy or all those other kinds of related concepts that are about attraction and um, winning friends and things like that, they don't quite capture what I saw authoritarian states doing, which, was things like um, trying to silence activists and critics abroad, sometimes by killing them. Uh, it didn't capture instances in which China, for example, uses the threat of curtailing market access to enforce speech, uh, to enforce you know political red lines abroad, or to get companies to refer to Taiwan or Xinjiang in a particular way. Right? That's not soft power. But it's important for authoritarian states in terms of how they try to influence how they're talked about abroad. So I I started to think and to read in across various kind of literatures related to these themes and came up with this idea of authoritarian image management, which is basically comprised of the efforts by the state or its proxies to enhance or protect the legitimacy of the state's political system outside its borders. So it's about promoting a positive image, but it's also about protecting that image by uh, undermining critics or censoring um, uh, foreign correspondents who might be operating in your country. Right? So it kind of tries to take a bunch of different seemingly unrelated activities and put them under the same umbrella.
1: So that leads really nicely to hopefully your answer to the question that you raised yourself, which is why do authoritarian states care? Why are they invested in what people outside say?
0: Yeah, and you know it's I, I think you can you can think about it in two ways. One is there are internal reasons, and the other is there are external reasons. So in terms of internal reasons, um, it's useful internally if an authoritarian state has a good image abroad externally, right? So, you know, and it it, it makes sense in some ways. I mean, everybody likes to think that they're part of some kind of project or community that has esteem among other people, right? So if an authoritarian state can plausibly claim to be seen as a model abroad or as respected abroad, then it can feed that information back into the domestic sphere uh, and hopefully from its perspective, gain more legitimacy at home. So for kind of a separate project um, with some co-authors, we analyzed, I forget, more than 100,000 North Korean propaganda articles, state propaganda articles. And a really big category um, among that group was uh, basically articles of foreigners saying nice things about North Korea, right? Um, so it would be this, you know, Bulgarian group uh, says that uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il's thought is revolutionary and is, is wonderful and is a guide for humanity. Now, nobody abroad really believes that, or very few people do. But if, if it can be fed back into the domestic political system, then it means that foreigners are looking upon your political system with envy and with respect, which can help boost the government's legitimacy at home. So that's kind of the internal, I think, sort of side of the story. But there's an external side. So a good image abroad can help you achieve specific foreign policy aims. It can help you be seen as a good aid recipient. Um, It can help reduce resistance to your foreign policy aims. You know, if your president goes abroad to A state visit somewhere else, it can reduce the possibility that there are going to be protests against that president, for example. At a deeper level, though, it can also change the terms on which the state is discussed. Uh, So, an example that's actually kind of unfolded after the book was published was this um, US led summit of democracy, uh, which happened in December of last year, December 2021. And basically, this was a big international conference to kind of celebrate democracy and talk about ways to improve democracy and so on and so forth. Um, China obviously was not invited. Uh, it's not a democracy. But it released a white paper on what democracy is and talked a lot about changing the definition of democracy and challenging what it would call Western democracy uh, and advocating for a political system that from its perspective you know efficient and delivers for its people and so on so it's not just about being seen kind of positively it's also about changing the terms on which we judge political systems right um, and that can have all kinds of benefits in terms of reducing pressure to change in terms of marginalizing critics who might be inclined to um, to try to challenge your political authority so and kind of an externally, uh, manicured or, um, you know, crafted image can be helpful for those reasons as well.
1: Got it. And so if we're thinking about that idea of practical examples, how this actually plays out, um, you give us this really helpful theoretical contribution in the book by explaining four mechanisms of how authoritarian states actually control their image or try to. Um, and you specify that the mechanisms. Very long form and target, creating four categories: right, promotional versus obstructive, and diffuse versus specific targeting. So, can you explain for us kind of what you mean by these terms and how they interact? Maybe with some more examples, please.
0: Sure. So, you know, people who've, um, you know, as you know, people who read political science or international relations, book, particularly kind of um, those in sort of the older tradition, they always have a two by two, right, um, which is basically a box with Four cells uh, with two, you know, two words on the top and two words on the side, and that's basically what I'm envisioning here, which is that we can think about the tactics, we can organize that the actual concrete tactics of authoritarian image management uh, by their audience. In other words, whether it's intended for a diffuse audience, which is sort of everybody, right? It's broad appeal uh, to, to 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 broad audiences, or specific, which is targeting certain people who are particularly influential in shaping opinions, journalists, policymakers, you know, thought leaders, uh, sometimes academics. So you can think of uh, uh, diffuse and specific audiences. And then in terms of form, you can think about promotional and obstructive. Promotional is basically putting forth a positive image of yourself, promoting content that's favorable to the state. Uh, and obstructive is trying to eradicate or kind of contain unfavorable ideas disseminated by other states or societal actors. So put together then, as as you say, you get four kind of um, uh, plausible mechanisms of what authoritarian image management is. So promotional and and, uh, diffuse is external propaganda. It's things like CGTN or RT even, right? It's out there. It's designed for a broad audience. It's promotional in the sense if you've ever uh, looked at China Global Television or Red Xinhua. It's positive information about China kind of up, down, and sideways, right? Uh, And it's just designed to to be out there and, you know, whoever sees it, sees it, right? So that's the kind of promotional diffuse. The promotional specific is um, information or, 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 you know, Tactics that target particular individuals. So, sticking with the China example, this is um, getting foreign um, uh, individuals who have some platform to speak positively positively about China. Right? So, this in the Chinese uh, context, it's called you know foreign friends, basically having prominent thought leaders or influential people say nice things about you when there's a microphone in front of them. Yeah. Um. In terms of obstructive, obstructive diffuse um, is, you know, as I mentioned before, authoritarian states can't very effectively censor information abroad, right? Uh, and so often they rely on distraction or changing the conversation. So there was an example in, um, you, you know, you see this example quite a bit on social media, right, where um uh, something will happen, uh, you know, and you'll see that that state's kind of, you know, Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts linked to that state change the conversation about that event. So one example I talk about in the book is um, the downing of the Malaysia Airlines flight over Ukraine uh, several years ago. What you saw is um, social media accounts linked with Russian individuals who themselves were linked with the government. Um Change and spin and cast doubt on who is responsible for shooting down the the the, the jet, and changing the conversation to make it really about uh, you know NATO, um, you know problems with NATO or problems with the United States. Um, And so that's an example of uh, diffuse uh, obstructive. Specific obstructive is uh, something I I think we'll probably talk about later, which is basically um, targeting or repressing particularly threatening individuals abroad. Okay. So the most famous example is, um, you know, at least the most famous recent example is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in, in Turkey. Uh, you know, he had begun to criticize the Saudi government. Uh, he had a big platform. I mean, he was a Washington Post journalist. Um, and eventually that it became too threatening to um, the emerging, changing Saudi government um, such that um, they perceived it would be beneficial to um, to kill him.
1: Okay. And I think that's a great example of the types of obstructive things or promotional things, right? Obstructive, in this case, the murder of a, jur- a prominent journalist or promotional, the kind of use, as you said, of Twitter thoughts, but also sometimes Twitter, particularly influential people. Um, I know this is a particular thing with RT on YouTube for a while. Um, that target kind of specific audiences and can come up in headlines quite significantly. Um, Why might a state choose to use something more diffuse, either promotionally or obstructively? Um, And how might we notice this if it's not something so obviously attention grabbing?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I I think one interesting aspect of the diffuse side of things um, is Comes through public relations uh, firms. So I gathered some data on the activities of public relations firms in the United States who did work on behalf of uh, authoritarian entities um, in the United States. So basically, there's this law called the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which, if you are an agent in this case, a PR firm, often applies also to like lawyers and you know other. Uh, people offering services. And if you are doing politically relevant work for foreign entities, you have to register that with the U.S. Department of Justice. You have to fill out a few forms, kind of tell them what you're doing, why you're doing it. And then they publish that on the Department of Justice website. So it's a huge resource kind of there available for everybody. Um, And I went through and analyzed those public relations documents um, and found that authoritarian states and their their sub entities, you know, sometimes as particular ministries or embassies or something, um, they spend you know hundreds of millions of dollars annually uh, in the U.S. to change, not only to lobby, you know, um, Congress people, which is you know the kind of prototypical prototypical example, but also to build relationships with next generation leaders, uh, to um, get positive coverage of their Country or some particular initiative related to their country um, in the United States. Um, Probably one of the most um, you know visible recent examples was um, Mohammed bin Salman's tour of the United States a few years ago. You know this is the kind of de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. You know, he had all these high-level meetings and tons of coverage, and a press team following him around everywhere. And you know, you saw this narrative start to emerge in the United States of this guy as a modernizer and as a, you know, somebody who could really take Saudi Arabia to, um, you know, to, to to new heights and to wean it off of oil dependency and so on and so forth. Um, of course, the murder of Khashoggi interfered with a lot of that narrative. But I'd say that narrative hasn't disappeared entirely. I mean, you still see a lot of that kind of talk uh, when it comes to MBS, um, in, in not only in the United States, but but kind of globally.
1: That's a really good example and leads me, does this work? In your analysis, this, this pouring in of this money, especially in the US, though perhaps that's just because there is this amazing database and so we can track it better in the US. But Does it work?
0: Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So, I mean, the first, you know, first thing I want to say on that is that you're you're right that the U.S. you know, it's this transparency legislation does provide us a lot of information that we don't have in other states. So it's really, really like the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, um, if you want to know what um, China is doing to manicure its image in African states, for example. Or um, in some of its neighboring states in Asia, um, you might not have that access to that same information, and you kind of have to—you know—you're in a sort of a—you uh, know—you uh, have a huge information gap in order to to kind of answer some of the questions you want. So, for better or worse, um, you know, this law in the United States is beneficial for for researchers for that end. Um, does it work, right? So, this is the this is the billion dollar question, and it's notoriously hard to to pin this down, right? Um, you know, one way to look at it is to think about survey experiments. Um, you know, to have group A, you know, um, consume a piece of information, and group B consume another piece of information, and have group B be exposed to some kind of um, authoritarian propaganda, and then measure their political attitudes before and after. That's kind of one way to do it. Um, another way that I've been kind of exploring with some co-authors, and this is uh, sort of extension uh you know next steps of the book is to think about how to use text analysis um you know big sort of large scale machine coded text analysis to figure out if authoritarian propaganda changes uh our conversations about key issues related to that state um so i've done some work on this with regard to china um Thinking particularly about the influence of Xinhua, which is the main um, state news agency. Xinhua is a state news, news agency, yes, but it also functions as a wire service, actually, so similar to Reuters or AP or AFP. You know, you foreign um, news outlets can purchase the rights to be able to run Xinhua stories, and some do. They're not. Not as many as those other agencies, but but some do, particularly um, those agencies or those outlets that might be might not be able to afford some of those other um, outlets. Um, And you can see that it it does have some impact in terms of changing um, um, the way China is talked about in a lot of localities. Right now, how that translates to public opinion is a step that the book doesn't actually get to because it's 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 quite difficult to measure and public opinion about a state can be influenced by by lots of different things. So a lot of people look in these last few years, for example, to um, declining um, favorability ratings of China among foreign publics, particularly in the West, actually. Um, and that's true. That does seem to be happening, you know, but it might be worse if not for some of these efforts, right? So it's, it's hard to pin down with any degree of specificity, the effectiveness.
1: That is presumably frustrating for researchers like yourself, but probably also pretty frustrating for the countries investing millions of dollars in these kinds of efforts. i sorry,
0: it is, but you know, the funny thing is they, they continue to act as if it works, right? And I am presuming, or I would not be surprised if there's, if they're privy to information that that I'm not, right? So I don't have the resources or the inside knowledge that some of these agencies have. Uh, and so there's a reason they're um investing all this money in uh influencing their image abroad. And I think it's because they think it works. So so long as they think it works, I think it's a worthwhile object of study.
1: Absolutely. And On the subject of massive amounts of data and research to try and come up with something, um, I wanted to move on to the data set, the database that you introduce in this book as well, the Authoritarian Actions Abroad Database, which has over 1,200 individual cases of an authoritarian country engaging in obstructive specific activity. So moving away from the diffuse for a moment. Um, It's clearly a massive amount of work tracking all sorts of specific actions, many of them, in fact, all of them by definition happening outside of the authoritarian country themselves. Um, And I was particularly interested to see that the list of top 10 countries whose actions show up in the database had just a few things that I noticed, Uzbekistan ahead of China and North Korea, Turkey ahead of Russia, Tajikistan ahead of Iran, and Thailand ahead of Egypt. Can you tell us more about this database, how it works, what it analyzes, and whether it might be available to other researchers?
0: Yep. Yeah, so on that last point, uh, it's available freely to researchers, to anybody on my personal website. You don't have to buy the book. Uh, I mean, it'd be nice if you did, but I mean, <laughs> you, know, you don't have to. It's free. It's available there. Um, you know, If you use it, uh, just credit the, the source. Uh, But otherwise, it's available to to anybody, and quite a few people. Last time I checked, uh, had downloaded it, so I'm really happy to see that that people are using it uh, for their own research or just having a look and and seeing what's what's going on. Um, So this is a, a data set of what's often called transnational repression, right? So it's states repressing, as you say, their own citizens abroad. So this is it's not a matter of a state repressing a foreigner abroad, right? It's a matter of a state. You know, state A repressing a citizen of state A who happens to be in state B. Yeah. Um, and so the, the data set is uh, nearly 1,200 cases. I think it's 1,177 cases of, uh, from between 1991 and 2019 of publicly reported instances of authoritarian states uh, repressing or attempting to repress their citizens abroad. So it captures kind of an escalating severity, you know, um, threats to dissidents abroad all the way up to assassinations um, and in between activities like arresting or um, uh, attacking or threatening the family of the person. Okay. Um, and so th- we gathered this data, you know, I had uh, help with of some research assistance, um, but basically what we did is we did, uh, you know, carefully um, searched Google news search terms um, and LexisNexis UK search terms, and just kind of gathered up as many articles as we could, cross-checked them as much as we could to figure out, um, you know, to verify details. Basically, a lot of these cases um, can be really murky, right? which is not surprising because these cases are often. Not meant to be seen in the first place, right? Um, they're meant to be hidden and deniable and, um, you know, um, something that the authoritarian state can pretend it has no- nothing to do with. So it relies on um, journalists often, but also NGOs to find and publicize information about these cases for us researchers to then analyze. Uh, so we did uh, those search terms uh, initially in English, and then we did searches and verification in Chinese, Russian, Turkish, uh, French, and Arabic, and Korean. <laughs> and, and so if you, know, if you were to go to my website and look at the, the, uh, the database, you would see that it's organized at the event level. So an entry in the database is one thing happening to one or a group of people on a particular, ideally, we can capture a particular day uh, and, um, you know, what the source country is and what the host country is. Right? Um, and so, you know, you know, in the book, you know, I discuss some of the kind of trends in that data set. Um, and I think one of the things you see is as domestic space is clamped down upon, you see then an increase, kind of a lagged increase in, trans, in transnational repression or an extraterritorial repression. So Uzbekistan is a good example. Um, I mean, part of the reason it has so many cases is that there was a domestic um, I mean, massacre, essentially in 2005, which drove a lot of people abroad. A lot of those people who went abroad, either were targets of the repression, or had seen and had information about the repression, or themselves were activists, and so therefore were perceived as threatening to the image of the state. And the state went after those people with with um, vigor and, um, and tracked a lot of them down. Uh, a lot of the Chinese cases are um, Uyghurs living abroad. Who are have been caught up in the campaign of repression since 2014? Um, sometimes they're political actors. Sometimes they're just students who are abroad who are, you know, perceived as threatening to the state because uh, of their connections and um, status of being outside the country. Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, the the resources there and it's available for for anybody who wants to do anything ranging from kind of quantitative analysis to looking at particular cases in more detail. Um, and for all the cases, I provide the source, uh, the, you know, the information source where it came from. So people can go look and, um, and then follow up cases from there.
1: It's a really cool database. So I very much appreciate reading about it in the book and having the opportunity to explore on your website. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting information in there that many of us can probably do very cool research with um, in addition to of course the rest of your research that I'm sure will continue coming out so thank you for putting that together and making it available to the rest of us. Um, I wanted to move on now that we've talked about your theoretical conception your database you also have three really helpful case studies looking at how particular authoritarian states use these different mechanisms in order to manage their international image. You look at China, North Korea, and Rwanda. And I'm particularly interested um, to stay with this example that you've already brought up a little bit of China. Um, and so I was wondering if you could elaborate for us how the Chinese Communist Party, the government of China, uses obstructive, diffuse mechanisms, particularly um, around the issue of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We've, we've, you've spoken a little bit about the specific obstructive aspect, particularly in terms of targeting people abroad. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk more about sort of diffuse dimensions of how the government approaches this conflict and the image management around it.
0: Yeah. So, you know, this, um, this was a tricky one to study because um, it's, you know, it's hard to track down and hard to conceptualize what might look like a rebuttal to criticism essentially is, is what, is what I was thinking of here. So what I decided to do was to analyze um, videos of China global television, CgtN, which is a state, uh, well, I mean a party controlled um, news outlet. It used to be CCTV seven or nine, I can't remember. um the English is basically the English language um, external propaganda television station of of China. Um, and it went through a kind of a rebrand a few years ago. Um to be Cgtn, and so it looks kind of more sleek and it has news um, news shows, you know, talk shows and analysis, sometimes documentaries and so on and so forth. but it's all very tightly controlled by the state. Okay? Um, and so it's a good uh, source to understand how uh, China responds to a particular to a particular issue, right? Um, and so I chose Xinjiang, um, repression in Xinjiang to see, I mean, you know, it's one of the you know, biggest human rights stories of, of, of our time. And it's one in, in which the state is actively repressing information, right? It's um, trying to clamp down as much as possible on information leaving. Um, it's attacking the reputation of people who criticize or who research the repression it's sanctioning, even foreigners who uh, research, um, who research Xinjiang, or perhaps who criticize too loudly policies in Xinjiang. Um, and so, I thought it was a good case to try to analyze, to think about how China responds to to criticism. Basically, so what I did is I went to YouTube and um, analyzed all the videos of CGTN that were about Xinjiang. Okay. Um, and tried to kind of categorize them and think about them, particularly in terms of, um, it, particularly over time. Right? Um, so what I found was that prior to 2018, there was not too many videos about Xinjiang, it wasn't too much coverage. But if there was, it was about terrorism, and so it was about like a terrorist incident, um, or it was about the kind of culture and development of you know brought by the party to xinjiang being a good thing right about you know raising people's standards of living and protecting traditional culture and that kind of thing uh, so this was prior to 2018 which is interesting because we know that the campaign started you know the campaign of repression started earlier started around 2014 so the preferred you know i infer from that that the preferred strategy by the party to deal with Xinjiang would be if it didn't have to talk about it at all, right? Um, if it could just kind of ignore uh, the issue internationally. But what you see is you, you can track the salience of you know any given topic in global media over time. You can track how much it's talked about. And so if you do that for Xinjiang, you see that in late 2018 and early 2019, um, you, you start to see more attention to Xinjiang in the global media. And then in late 2019, kind of an explosion of attention. This is because the New York Times and the, well, in separate leaks, separate, there were separate document leaks, one to the New York Times and one to the um, International Consortium of of Investigative Journalists, the same grouping that did the Panama Papers story. Um, And so you saw, you know, huge renewed attention to Xinjiang. So prior to 2018, not too much attention from CGTN. They didn't really feel like they had to respond. And then around late 2018, early 2019, you start to see videos about the camps themselves, about the the detention facilities, the re-education facilities. And they're making arguments uh, that the camps are, in fact, voluntary re-education facilities. They're doing video techniques like bringing... Um, foreign diplomats, who are unnamed in the videos, and and we don't know who they are, um, but bringing foreign diplomats to model detention facilities to show, hey, these aren't threatening, these are just, um, you know, voluntary, like, boarding schools or, or, uh, um, you know, skill, vocational skills, schools, things like that. Um, That argument becomes untenable over, over time, or at least it doesn't really It's not really convincing people very much um, uh, abroad. And so what you see is that as attention becomes, you know, to Xinjiang abroad becomes intensified and accelerated, um, Beijing's response becomes accelerated as well. And so the response, as seen in these CGTN videos, is to shift the conversation to emphasize that this was a response to terrorism. Um, that that at any rate, the West in particular is hypocritical and has no room to criticize China. Has no moral standing to criticize China because, after all, look what it's done in Guantanamo and um, and Iraq and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but perhaps more importantly, the content, uh, the kind of the the uh, amount of content increases a lot from CGTN as you see more attention to. Uh, to Xinjiang internationally. Um, And so they felt they had to respond directly, basically, rather than to let criticism go unanswered. This all culminated in December 2019 with two documentaries put out by by, uh, CGTN, Um, basically both, I think, 50 or 55-minute long documentaries about um, uh, terrorism. In Xinjiang and about de-radicalization and you know very dramatic and uh, um, you know videos about the the destruction wrought by terrorism and how what the party is doing is you know the right security policy um, and you know the West would do the same thing uh, but they're just hypocritical and want to bring China down. Um, one of the interesting things about that is that this the exact same day the video was released um, on CGTN, there's the um, foreign ministry spokesperson argued that, you know, we released the truth about Xinjiang and Western media ignored it. So they they clearly had this kind of pre-prepared package um, of of arguments uh, that they settled on around late 2019 uh, in order to to, um, change and shift the conversation.
1: And I think that that's one of the things that's most interesting about the way that you look at the case studies in this book is that it's not just about here's a theoretical concept, or here's an example of this, the tracing of cause and effect, cause and effect, wait, this happens and leads to this, or this happens, it could have led to this, um, is very clear. And it makes it really easy to see how maybe what sounds like at the beginning, like a lot of different types of pieces, a lot of different kinds of management, actually how it works in practice is it's not just one of these menu items, as it were, but how states can approach it Um, through a lot of different angles to kind of get the same sort of result and that came through particularly in your case study on Rwanda Um, and I want to quote a bit that you said you argue that quote Rwanda is perhaps the most successful example of authoritarian image management in the contemporary world which based on my own research um, around civil wars in sub-Saharan Africa I might agree with And your case study outlines a number of types of issue management used by the Rwandan state from tourism-focused TV shows and advertisements at European football matches saying, visit Rwanda, to surprising high rate of attempted and successful assassinations. So really uh, quite a range there. Um, So I was wondering if you could explain to us a bit how you think Uh, Rwanda has managed its image and why you think it's been so incredibly successful
0: yeah well thanks yeah I mean I think it the first thing to note I think is that for a lot of this time period that the book covers uh, Rwanda was a recipient of foreign aid from not just western countries but uh, South Korea and Japan as well Uh, and so what you have is a situation in which Rwanda has a, you know, the Rwandan government has a massive incentive to look positive abroad because it's an aid recipient. And for a lot of this time period, particularly earlier in the time period, it was dependent really on on aid. Um, And so it has these incentives to promote itself as stable, to promote itself as competent in terms of managing and distributing aid. Um, A lot of the aid uh, was uh, direct government support, like general budgetary support, Uh, and increasingly to present itself as a democracy, Uh, even though I think if you look at election results in which Kagame wins, you know, 95% with 95% turnout and, you know, those kind of Soviet level numbers, um, you know, I don't think very many... Neutral observers believe that it actually is a democracy, so you know it's it has a lot of incentives to do that, and so therefore it pays a lot of attention to um, to policing the conversation about Rwanda abroad. You know, one example, you know, I, I think illustrative example of the book is as I was writing it and writing the chapter and you know, um, discussing the history of, you know, the recent history of, um, uh, of the RPF, I decided to look for, um, to look on this, uh, the Ar- main RPF newspaper, basically what news website for the, all the, the scholars that I was citing. And what I found is dozens and dozens of articles, um, criticizing the scholars that I was citing, for being, um, you know, for, for, for promoting genocide ideology, for having biased views, for not being serious scholars, for, you know, for, for being um, people with ulterior motives and so on and so forth. And this is really striking because most states, like, don't pay attention to academics, right? Um, we just don't have the reach or the influence to really worry about. But a state like Rwanda gets that granular and thinks about, and responds to academics writing books or writing articles or even chapters in edited volumes of academic books, right? So things get you know they pay a lot of attention uh, to the issue, um, and I think, as you mentioned, the um, kind of repressive side of it is one that I think people are now starting to understand uh, based on some some journalism. That's come out, you know. That's some reporters that have been kind of pursuing this issue for the last couple of years. um, That Rwanda has has assassinated or allegedly assassinated um, uh, critics abroad uh, in South Africa, in uh, neighboring, um, you know, in in neighboring states in Uganda. Uh, And the reason for this is seems to be, I think, that they um, they're often either journalists who are critical of the government. Or um, former insiders who have secrets, who have dirty laundry, basically, to, that they could potentially share um, about Kagami and his inner circle, um, particularly the things that the um, RPF uh, might have done during the war. This is a super sensitive issue for the RPF. They don't want to. Um, they don't want to discuss any of that, and they actively um, censor that information and discredit people who might challenge its narrative. Uh, and so they really pay attention quite a lot to, um, to those, um, to those aspects of authoritarian image management. And frankly, it works because in part, um, you know, we, we see that aid continues to come. I mean, there's some criticisms here and there, but by and large, um, you know, it hasn't, um, you know, Rwanda's international relationships, still, are, you know, are still there. And you have elites who um, who are really supportive of, of Rwanda abroad, you know, um, people, you know, former politicians and uh, former presidents, Bill Clinton, and, you know, these kinds of people who um, really extol and talk very positively about Kagame and the RPF. Um, so I think those um, those are powerful kind of allies for the legitimacy Particularly the international legitimacy of the government. Um, you know the the last thing I'd say is that it's easiest to create a successful authoritarian image management strategy when you have something positive to say. Right? I think this is why uh, part of the reason why Rwanda is is effective because the state has done some things right and right? it has gotten some decisions right. Uh, it has uh, built a bureaucracy and. When journalists go there, you know they—they, you know, you know, foreign journalists go there or foreigners go there. You know, they—they see um, a much more organized place where they don't um, have to pay bribes routinely and and this kind of thing. Um, And so, you know, they um, there there is a story to tell, that uh, material to tell a positive story. Um, Of course, uh, on top of that. Um, the domestic media sphere is so repressed that bad news um, is more difficult for bad news to escape or to be challenged. So um, so it's kind of that good image is built on a foundation of censoring critics and censoring information that might be damaging.
1: That's a really good explanation of kind of the different levers that the state has and how they use them. And I think speaks to the general trend throughout your book, um, both The theory and also the specific case studies of it's not some things are within the state's control how they where they put their money how much money goes into it Um, but some things are not necessarily within that particular government's control. Um, Speaking of course about in some cases former Soviet countries where that's a pretty deep hole to get yourself out of if the expectation is oh you're just like the Soviet Union even if it's a new government in charge there's a lot going on there that may not be quite that simple. Um, And it's really helpful to see how all of the pieces go together. So I was wondering, though, as much as this book comes across to the reader very clearly, very coherently, it probably wasn't a super clear or coherent process necessarily at every point to put this book together. Um, And I'm always curious, what was the most surprising thing you discovered or found in the course of researching this book?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's... uh... I think a couple of things. I mean, one is I found myself, particularly while analyzing the data, becoming so skeptical of all the information around me. I mean, as academics, you know, we're of course trained to be skeptical of claims and to analyze information. And, you know, some of us, you know, uh, um, um, do that in our daily lives too. Right. But, um, you know, it, it became, Reading newspaper articles or seeing commentary about um, uh, about authoritarian states, uh, while writing the book, I started to become skeptical of the motives of the person giving the information. And oh, were they? You know, was that journalist placed there? Uh, you know, given that source by a PR firm, or uh, what's the motivation of this person? Um, speaking up on behalf of China, what are they getting out of it? You know what I mean. Are they true believers, or are they somehow given some kind of access, or or what? Right. So, you know, it's it's not, um, you know, it's not a specific piece of information that I found so surprising, but I found my own attitude towards things um, uh, becoming becoming, uh, you know, changing, um, or potentially changing. Uh, which which was kind of surprising. Um, I think, of course, you can take that way too far. <laughs> a lot of people do, right? Um, but I think a healthy skepticism about the information that's out there and, and the fact that some of it is is motivated, right? Um, it's not uh, unsullied information. Um, you know, the other thing I found that was kind of surprising or sort of an interesting development is, um, uh, you know, <sighs> That when when I one of the points at which I would applied for a visa uh, to do to go to China to to do some work um, uh, to do some academic work, um, I received an, an invitation from the Chinese embassy here in in Dublin to go on a a junket trip, essentially with other quote Irish friends, um, you know. To uh, I'm based in Ireland um, to um, to see the progress that China has made, to understand you know the forty years of reform and opening, to understand what Taiwan Province and yes, they said Taiwan Province is um, you know is uh, the close relations between Taiwan Province and the mainland and so on and so forth. So it was surprising to me to become somehow a uh, participant. And I, I mean, I didn't go on the trip, but to become a target of some of these efforts, right? Um, that was sort of surprising to me because, you know, as academics, we're kind of toiling away and we're, we're not usually thought of as, as really on anybody's radar for, for some of these things. So that was sort of a surprising, um, development. I briefly thought about going on the trip as a sort of, um, a participant observation sort of thing, but uh, ultimately I decided, decided not to do that. Um, Uh, I did interview quite a few people who had been on those sorts of trips, though, um, journalists and uh, of various stripes, um, and uh, their suspicions, uh, my suspicions were confirmed that these trips were pretty scripted and boring, and um, you kind of didn't really need to necessarily go on them to get the gist.
1: Well, then it sounds like you saved yourself a trip.
0: In in winter, no less.
1: (laughs) Not the best time to see China, necessarily. Um, So given the fact, you have this massive database, you've already discussed a little bit, um, other projects that you're working on. Uh, can I ask you, what are you working on now? Or what is upcoming that we can keep an eye out for?
0: Yeah, a few things. So um, I have a stream of research with some colleagues um, here at my, my home university at UCD, um, some colleagues who do text analysis, um, to be able to track changes in tone and content of large volumes of text Uh, and so together with with those co-authors we're trying to understand trying to measure and and assess the impact of some of specifically china's um, extra uh, you know external propaganda um, and the effectiveness of those techniques we're trying to get at that very question you were kind of asking earlier of sort of does does this work and when does it work and under what conditions does it work? So that's kind of one stream of, of research. Another is thinking about um, working more on this uh, extraterritorial repression or transnational repression. So I have a project with some co-authors again where we're trying to um, think about the domestic determinants of extraterritorial repression, kind of what drives it. Uh, And finally, another kind of the next book project is a co-authored project on the very early stages, but thinking about the kind of hijacking of soft power by authoritarian states, um, particularly uh, due to kind of weaponization of domestic markets to enforce speech um, or to change the kind of vehicles of, of soft power. So. We're trying to tell very early days, but we're trying to tell a longer story about how we got where we are in terms of, for example, liberal universities, liberal in the small L sense, uh, you know, liberal universities partnering with authoritarian governments or companies kind of falling all over themselves to protect market access to China in particular, but but not just China um, by censoring content um, to try to think about the tie ups between entertainment and knowledge production industries and um, and, and authoritarian states. Um, so those are kind of the, 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 the things that are um, uh, thinking about now. And all of them, I should note, involve co-authors, which I find is a really uh, interesting way to work because co-authors can bring different methods and different ways of looking at things to kind of shed new light on some of these questions that you might have. So um i find it uh, a really enriching experience if you can find the if you can find the right co-authors
1: well thank you for that and i think there's going to be a lot of us myself included who are going to be keeping an eye out on your future work and i think there's going to be a lot more that we can learn um so once again the book is making the world safer dictatorship from oxford university press um and i would definitely recommend it for anyone interested in thinking about how authoritarian states do things beyond their borders um, and how some of these ideas that we often think are separate, like use of targeted violence versus um, tourism and press junkets, actually can be much more interrelated than we might think. So thank you very much again, uh, Dr. Alexander Dukolsky, for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much.